Tonight is the second of the monthly lessons that are going to be questions and answers. I do have four or five more questions that have been asked, and Lord willing, next month I will deal with some of those as well. But tonight I want to deal with two, and I do want to begin by pointing out question and answers is an excellent way to learn. In fact, quite often the teacher will ask the question and the students will respond and the teacher will then lead the student toward the direct or correct answer. But there's also great value in the student saying to a teacher occasionally, teacher, what does this mean? And sometimes a person does need additional information. The Ethiopian eunuch, he asked when... Peter, Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I except someone guide me? And then he says, of whom does this prophet speak, himself or some other man? And so Philip began at that scripture and preached Jesus to him. But I do want to say this. It's no substitute for a person doing their own study and research. I encourage people to try to study some on their own and try to learn on their own so that when a question arises, they don't always have to ask someone else. They can say, the Bible says this or that. So I will tell you this. The old phrase is, you can give a man a fish and he eats today. You can teach a man to fish and he'll eat from now on. If sometimes some of you say, I've got some questions but I'd like to know how to look them up myself, then I'll be more than glad personally to help you try to study through some of these lessons. Now, there are, again, I remind you, different types of questions that one might ask. For instance, you might ask a textual question. In other words, if you're studying in the Bible this particular passage, what does this passage mean? And those are great questions. I like those because you can deal with the context, you can deal with parallel passages as well. Other questions are topical. Some aspect of Bible doctrine. What does the Bible say, for instance, about baptism? What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? What does the Bible say about the Lord's Supper? And then there are practical questions. These are questions which relate to how do I do something the way God wants me to do it? And in doing so, you not only have to go and search all of the passages that are relevant, but you have to learn how to apply them as well. Well, tonight we have two questions that we're going to address. One is topical and one is practical. The first one that was asked, would you explain demon possession? Now, I think that's a very appropriate question considering the time of year. For the next several weeks, many of you may turn on your television and see horror movies. I don't know if that's something you are interested in or not. But in watching many of those, there will be a demonic overtone, if not outright directly relating to it. The second question is, what could we do to be more friendly and attract more visitors? That's also a really good question. So let's address these two in tonight. And as we talk about demon possession, we're going to talk about the views that men hold toward that. We're going to then look at some biblical teaching on it. And then finally to address what is the real question on most people's minds is, does demon possession happen today? 
So let's talk about views. When you talk about demon possession in the Bible, some people look at it as being nothing more than simple superstition. And in that case, they believe it simply did not exist. And in this case, they are infidels. The word infidel means not a believer. To give you a good example, in Acts 23 and verse 8, Luke is describing the composure of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And he says about a certain group, he says, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. People today who do not believe in demons are just like the Sadducees in the sense that they do not believe that there is a spirit realm, either of good spirits or of evil spirits. There are others who believe that, yes, there were people who were diagnosed as being demon-possessed in the Bible, but that was really just a misdiagnosis, and people were in reality troubled with a mental illness. I don't know if you have ever dealt with people who say they saw things. Uh, I have been to Moccasin Bend twice, and I have been in a section where... The people who are, I'm trying to be very polite about the way I say this, not very in touch with reality. And uh, in doing so, some of those people might appear to you to have some sort of spirit within them. They certainly are not in their right minds. The third view is that people were actually possessed by evil spirits that were allowed by God. Now, I know many people will say, well, where do these evil spirits come from? And what is their composure? What are they made out of? Where did they arise from? Well, there's two possibilities. The first one is that they are possibly angels who fell but were not consigned to the prison or to the abyss. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time dealing with this, but I'd like to lead you just through two or three passages. In 2 Peter 2 and verse 4, he says, For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, to be delivered them to chains of darkness, to be reserved for judgment. And if you take Jude's parallel, in Jude verse 6, he talks about that being a prison. In Luke 8 and verse 31 And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. The big picture here is is that there were angelic type beings that were to be consigned to an abyss, to be consigned to a prison, to be consigned to a place of torment, but some did not go there. And you say, well, surely they all did. Well, not necessarily. If you go to the book of Job, to Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came and presented themselves before the Lord, and listen, and Satan came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan said, answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Now we do know that Satan fell, as Jesus said, as like a lightning from heaven. But we also know from Job chapter 1 that Satan 
did not go to the prison or to the abyss. So it is very possible that demons like Satan, who was the prince of demons, was the one who perhaps, like others, who were not consigned there. There are others who hold that this is possibly the spirits of evil men. And uh, there's, as we talk about Mark chapter 5 in a moment, I will point out to you why some think they might be the spirits of evil men. Now, as you go a little bit further, I want to address some biblical teaching on the subject. Number one, we have to recognize that the Bible makes a distinction between being possessed of an evil spirit or demon possession and that of an illness. Let me give you a couple of passages. Matthew 8, verse 16. When evening had come, they brought him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast the spirits out with a word, and, that's your conjunction, and healed all who were sick. Matthew 4, verse 24. Then his fame went out through all Syria, and all they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases, and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Now, if you will notice, they are people who were gathered together, and there was a sense in which there was demon possession, and that was a casting out, and then there were those who were healed of various diseases. I tried to find one passage that I thought would teach as much as possible in one place so I didn't drag you around through several passages. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles now to Mark chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15. We will go through point by point on these. And I think if you've got your Bible, it would be good. But if you don't, there are pew Bibles in front of you. And be good because after we read the passage, we're just going to simply make reference to some specific points in these verses. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out 
and entered the swine, and there were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Now let's, for just a few moments, try to break this passage down. Look at verses 2 and 3. Out of the tombs, dwelling in the tombs. That's one of the reasons why people think this might be the spirits of departed evil men because of the attraction to these mortal tenements, the, uh, uh, the death and the tombstones and the various parts of the cemetery. He's a man who possessed a considerable amount of abnormal human strength because it says no one could bind him. He pulled apart chains and shackles. Neither could anyone tame him. You know, you could put a set of children's handcuffs on me and I could be able to just jerk them apart and nobody would think that was anything remarkable because they're just made out of small either metal or plastic. However, if you were to take big old log chains and you were to bind my hands with those, and I were to be able to jerk them apart, you'd say, that's not normal. In fact, those chains are so strong that generally people can't do that. But the, those possessed of demons had that power. If you look at verse 5, it says, Night and day, crying out and cutting himself with stones, the demonic possession was such that the person who was possessed was literally tormented in his body. No sleep, night and day. The physical exhaustion must have been awful. But to cut yourself with the stones, whether those cuttings were for the markings or whether those cuttings were for just the letting of blood, it had to be to torment that body. But I want you to notice carefully what we find in verses 6 and 7. It says, seeing Jesus from afar. That means that he was looking for Jesus looking at a distance, seeing him from afar. And it says, he called out and specifically named him Jesus, Son of God. He knew who Jesus was, and he fell down before him, which was an act of reverence, which is what the word worship to mean, this particular word worship to mean anyway. When I go to the other parts of the Bible, James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble when they know they're in the presence of the Almighty God or the Almighty Jesus. They know that they're in the presence of someone much more powerful than they. I want you to notice in the context, they ask permission. They do not make demands because they're in no position to make demands. Mark 1 verse 34 tells us, Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. There was a time in the personal ministry of Jesus when he said, you can't tell anybody. 
He, would, he made the demons not talk, but this case, in Mark 5, they're able to speak. Verse 7 is an interesting verse. The demons say, what have I to do with you? Now, that's a phrase that we may not always appreciate because it's an idiom. It's a phrase that has meaning. Like, you're pulling my leg means you're joking with me. When you say, what have I to do with you is simply meaning that's not your business or that's not my business. Let me give you at least a couple of illustrations. For instance, in 2 Kings 3 and verse 13, Elisha is the prophet, Jehoram is the king. And then Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said, No, for the Lord has called these three kings to deliver them into the hand of Moab. He said, I want your, I want your help. He said, What do I have to do with you? It's none of my business. You want to go to the false prophets of Baal of your mother and father? Go to them, but don't come to me. Or Second Chronicles 35 and verse 21, when King Pharaoh Necho from Egypt was going out to fight and Josiah, the king of Judah, decided he was going to go and interfere with that. But he sent messages to him and saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come out against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Notice how he says, what have I to do with you, King of Judah? I don't have any business with you. This is none of your concern. When the demon says to Jesus, what have I to do with you? He was saying, I don't want you meddling in what I'm doing. Jesus didn't listen to the demon. The demon was not in control. Get to verse 7. He asked and says, do not torment me. The reason why is he knew his ultimate fate. I want you to listen to the parallel passage in Matthew 8, verse 29. And suddenly he cried out saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us? Notice that last phrase, before the time. Evidently, God had permitted these demons to have some sort of ability to go into a person and possess them during this period of time. And what they're saying is, please don't do it now. Give us a little bit more time. We know according to verse 8 that the demons came out. According to Mark 9, verse 25, they came out by a word. This was an elaborate ceremony where you call for a man wearing a black robe and some sort of a uh, thing around his neck, and he takes holy water, which whatever that is, and takes some sort of a crucifix, and he sprinkles that person who's possessed with holy water, and somehow it burns their face, and the head turns around, and uh, green puke comes out... That's Hollywood. Listen to Mark 9, 25. When Jesus saw the people come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 8. 
And when the evening had come, they brought him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word. Come out! And they came out. That's it. Didn't have to do anything else. Get to verse 9, and Jesus asked, What's your name? Who are you? I said, Legion. Because we're many. What you learn here is more than one evil spirit could possess one person. More than one evil spirit. You don't see that on television. They ask, send us into the swine, verse 12. What that means is not only could demons possess a person, they could possess an animal. That's interesting. Of course, animals have a hard time dealing with it because what happens is they ran off of that steep bank into the Sea of Galilee and drowned there, 2,000 of them. When you get to verse 15, there's an important phrase there. They came they found the man sitting instead of running around like a crazy person. They found him clothed and, Mark says, in his right mind. Once the demon had been cast out, that person then had no one else or nothing else controlling him from the inside, tormenting him. Now, I know that took a long time, much more than I intended to, but I felt like that was important to take that passage. But then the question comes up, well, can that happen today? Can a demon possess a person against their will and come in and now cause somebody to cut themselves, cause them to live in tombs, cause them to have superhuman-like strength? I think you have to back up and ask the question, why did God allow this to start with? And what you find out is, is that it was an opportunity for Jesus and those who followed him to have power over the realm of the devil and show that to people. Why don't you listen to a couple of verses? Matthew 12, verse 28. But if I cast out spirits by, or demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus said, if I have got the power to cast out demons, God's kingdom's come upon you. You know that it's from God. Look at Luke 11, verse 20. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Folks, that's pretty plain. But the days of the miraculous have ceased. We could go talk about the miracles that are discussed in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and following. But then when you get to chapter 13 and... Paul is discussing these miraculous gifts. He says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. When there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. There was a plan in God's mind to allow the miracles to occur for a particular period of time. Once the full revelation was given, there was no more need for these miraculous gifts. You have to tie the miraculous gifts with the casting out of demons. Right after giving the Great Commission in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, he said in verse 17, And these signs will follow those who believe. 
In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And you look, drop down to verse 20. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So here's what you would look. It would be unfair for God to allow demon possession today with no one with a miraculous ability to take those demons and cast them out. So it makes no sense whatsoever. I will give you one other passage. I'm not fully convinced that that's what this passage is talking about, but I will present it to you anyway, and that's found in the book of Zechariah, chapter 13 and verse 2. In that day, or it shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the name of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cut off the prophets and the unclean spirits to depart from the land. I know there are some brethren who hold the view that when he says, I'm going to cut off the prophets and the unclean spirits, that that has reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that when the miraculous gift would cease, so would the evil spirits. That was question number one. I'm going to take question number two very quickly. And it's really two questions. How to be more friendly and how to attract visitors. But I know the substance and the person who asked the question, they're concerned with the Lord's church growing. And that's a good question. We ought to, every one of us, be concerned with doing our part to help the Lord's church grow. If we're not, we're not doing what we ought to be doing. But let me point out some things that we must not do. We must not change God's plan for the work and the worship of the church. I have no authority to do it, number one. But number two, that would make us something different from what God wants us to do. Many people are doing that. In doing so, there are some trying to spice up the church by making the worship services much more entertaining, make the church much more appealing to, and I'm going to say this directly, the lust of the flesh. We're thinking in worldly terms instead of spiritual terms when we're trying to make it appeal to the worldly people. We can never change the focus from pleasing God to pleasing man. I would deal with Romans 15, but I just want to take Galatians 1 and verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. If you and I decide somewhere in our minds that in order to make the church grow, we're going to abandon what God is pleased with to what man is pleased with, then we're no longer serving God. We're serving man. But Christians ought to be the friendliest and the most caring people serving God and loving our fellow man. We ought to let people, when they come in, know that we love them, we love their souls, we want them to be here, and God wants them to be here. I will tell you, when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 23 through 25, he's talking about their exercising spiritual gifts, miraculous gifts, in their local assembly. 
he is concerned with the fact that some would come together and they would be speaking in tongues and speaking in prophecy and people would come in as a visitor and they would hear all this going on and they would be confused. But Paul goes on to say in verse 25, if a person is listening carefully and you're preaching and teaching what's correct, he said, and thus the secrets of his heart will be revealed and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. We want to worship God in such a fashion that people when they come say, hey, those people love God, those people are trying to serve God and God is among them. And when you and I conduct ourselves as God would have us to, People can't complain. You know, sometimes people come to services. I've met people whose family and friend comes, and they're not here because they want to be, but because Mama said, you've got to go to church with me, or Daddy said, you've got to go to church with me, or the husband or the wife said, you've got to go to church with me. In 1 Peter 2.12, he says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. We ought to be conducting ourselves so that when people come in among us, they would look and maybe they didn't want to come for the right reason, but they look and they say, those people are worshiping God, those people are acting right, they're caring about people, they're doing the right thing. Let me talk to you for just a moment about some practical things that I think are involved. I think we need to practice the golden rule. You know what Matthew seven twelve says? We paraphrase it. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. But this is the law and the prophets. I'd like for you to think, how would you like to be treated when you go on vacation? And you don't know anyone there. You go into a, an assembly of God's people. How do you want them to treat you? Or maybe you move into a new community and you are now trying to find a home congregation. How do you want those people to treat you? Well, let's be specific for just a moment or two. I want somebody to greet me and ask my name. I want someone to say to me, who are you? And they say, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a preacher. Oh, good. You can lead the opening prayer tonight. But you may move into a community, and who are you? Well, I'm a mover. I'm a teacher. I work in this. Oh, you've got some commonality there. You learn something. They're interested in you. I want something, somebody to be interested in me as a person. We ought to be doing that. We ought to offer to help locating the auditorium, the restrooms, the classes, anything else. Somebody walks in the door, which direction do you go? They've never been in this building. Do you go right? Do you go left? Do you go up? Do you go down? Our auditorium is this way. Be helpful. If I go in the door, I want somebody to say, the auditorium is this way. If you need the restrooms, they're around this corner. Now I'm fixing to meddle. I'm serious. Move over. Don't say, I got here first, and if you wanted the end of the seat, then you need to have gotten here earlier than me. If someone comes in and they need a seat, especially on Sunday morning, 
when the only open seats are those down here near the front and there's about three seats on the other side of you, folks, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Move over. Let them in. That's just common courtesy. If you want to make people feel welcome, treat them like you yourself would want to be treated. James chapter 2, I think, addresses this very subject. In verse 2, if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and you, there should come into you a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand there, or you sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts, folks? That's pretty plain. If we look at certain people and we say, I'm not moving over for them, what have we done? The attraction usually comes from outside our building. Yes, we get visitors. We had a number with us this morning. I'm glad because we had a number of our folks gone. But there are opportunities that we have presented to us. This is a question that was asked and it needs to be answered. When we have opportunities like the Autumn Street Fair, we ought to fill every one of those slots with opportunities for people to go out and greet folks. And folks, you can do that. You can go out and say, hey, I, I'm Tony Lawrence. I'm from Bobby Ranch. Would you like a calendar, a daily Bible reading calendar? Would you like this or would you like that? We don't have many opportunities to reach out. When we do, we need to take every advantage of them. We need to be giving personal invitation to our family, our friends, our co-workers. We should never be ashamed to invite them. Many of them will say, oh, would you like to go to church with us? Many of them will say, oh, we're having a special singing. They don't mind inviting us, but are we inviting them? Let me tell you times when people are often ready to listen. In Colossians 4 and verse 5, walk in wisdom to those who are on the outside, redeeming the time. Colossians, Ephesians 5, 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The word redeeming the time literally carries with the idea, make the best of every opportunity that you have. You're at funeral home. Somebody has not been to church in five years. And you're sitting there next to them and they're bemoaning the fact that they are seeing themselves in that casket. They're seeing their own mortality. And they're saying, I need to get back in church. Don't let that opportunity pass. You'll never get that opportunity again. Say, you do need to get back in church, and we've got a seat for you. I'll move over for you. There's a place for you at Bobby Branch. You get them in the building, we love them, we treat them like we ought to treat them, and those people will come back. One more, and then I'm going to quit. Don't be critical of the church. Don't run down the elders. Don't make fun of the song leaders. Don't talk bad about the preacher. Don't talk ugly about the church whatsoever. And let me tell you why. If I tell you that I went to eat at a restaurant today and the food was terrible and it cost too much, would you want to go eat there? 
If you go out and you say, well, you know, we got them old elders, you know, and we got that old preacher. He preaches way too long. And by the time you get through describing the church, why would anybody ever want to go to church there? We need to be the kind of people who say, you know, Sunday morning rolls around and I love to go to church. I love to be able to sing, pray, and open my Bible and study God's Word. I want to tell you, some people will really wonder if there's demon possession day because of all the evil. You see all the ungodliness in this world? It's not because Satan has control of somebody. It's because they have agreed with Satan. They believed his lies. But let's not let the devil direct our lives. The Bible tells us in James 4 and verse 7, Therefore submit to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I hope that our lesson tonight has been beneficial. Let me urge you tonight. It may be that you're here and you've been mulling around in your mind. I need to be a Christian. I need to be obedient to the gospel. I I've heard the sermons, I know faith, I know repentance, I know confession, I know being baptized, and I really need to do that. Why are you waiting? It's not going to get any easier tomorrow. It's not going to be more convenient at a later season, a la Felix. Why not obey the gospel tonight? If you're a Christian, you need to come home. Please come back while we're standing inside.